Welcome to G5 Football Daily, your source for all things Group of Five, the AAC, the Sun Belts, Mountain West, and the MAC, of course, and Conference USA. Uh, we're talking college football playoff rankings, the latest set that just came out on uh, Tuesday, November 7th. Joe Lundergan here with you as always and happy to talk through it with uh, someone you've heard on the show plenty of times and someone you've heard doing podcasts with me. Uh, however many hundred of these we've done over the years (laughs) over the various outlets uh eric henry of uh, horns 247 and 247 sports uh covered g5 football together a long time eric happy to talk to you again tonight and uh we're ready to jump into some g5 football talk once again oh man no doubt about it joe yeah hundreds it's kind of weird to think it's been hundreds at this point but absolutely after doing a podcast for what five and a half years together and doing it damn near weekly. Yeah. We're easily in the hundreds at this point. So it is a pleasure to be on with you and join you on this platform here. And then I'll thank, you know, publicly thank my bosses at 24 seven sports for allowing me to join you here as a weekly guest. So yeah, man, yeah. fired up fired to talk a little G5 football. Yeah. I'll thank them as well. And I wonder how close we are to a thousand. I'll have to look that up. Maybe we'll do something special if, uh, if I actually remember, but Eric, before we do that, we got to talk about the latest set of uh, college football playoff rankings that came out tonight. Not too many uh, shocking things in there, uh, namely Tulane moving up one spot from 24 to 23 following that 13 to 10 win over ECU. Uh, so they're the only G5 team in there. We'll talk about uh, the other team that was in the rankings last week, Air Force, in a minute. They fall out of the top 25. A couple other teams that uh, may or may not be deserving of that spot from the group of five as well. But, you know, Eric, just to start things off with, you know, Tulane just kind of squeaked through against a, a pretty bad ECU team. So that was a little bit of a surprising result to me. Uh, that being said, at, at a certain point, you have to say, like, I think they talked about it on on the ESPN show a little bit this week um, for the rankings reveal. Surviving is part of it at this point, this late in the season. Everybody's tired. Everybody's banged up. So, I mean, sometimes you just got to win. But, and, you know, ultimately at the end of the day, Tulane is not one of the teams that's, you know, going to make the four-team playoff, um, you know, unfortunately. But they're still contending for that New Year's six spot. And sometimes you just got to get these wins. But what say you? No, Joe, I'm right there with you. I think in my mind, when it comes to the group of fives, I think that's always kind of frustrated me a little bit when it's come to the CFP or even before the CFP. It always felt to me like group of fives had to be twice as good to get half as far. I felt like they should be graded on the same scale that all the teams are, right? And this, in this case, Joe, I think you hit the nail on the head. And I'm glad that uh, the committee is starting to acknowledge that, that surviving should be half the battle uh, or, or should be taken into account. I mean, we're now, what, 10 weeks into the year, nine games into Tulane's schedule. They're eight and one. And yes, you, you know, you take a look at their wins here. You had a win by 20, a win by 18, a win by 29, a win by uh, win by 12. Outside of that, they've had some close ones, right? A 10 win, uh, a 10 point win over Memphis, uh, a seven point win over UNT, two-point win over Rice, three-point win over ECU. But it's this time of year, Joe. We're not talking about, you know, squeakers early in the year when, in theory, you're fully healthy and you've got your full arsenal. And also, I mean, this is a team that endured Michael Pratt, their star quarterback, being down for a couple weeks. So definitely think those things should be taken into account. And, yeah, I'm glad that they did decide to, you know, give them a a little bit of a a boost, a little bit of leeway there, and we'll see what happens in the final 
three weeks when they take on Tulsa, head to FAU and UTSA, three dangerous games. Uh, not necessarily contests that you think, you know, Tulane isn't capable of winning, but nevertheless, three dangerous games. So uh, I fall right there along with you and the uh, seemingly the CFP committee as well. I mean, the thing about this game for me is it's not that Tulane made a lot of really critical mistakes. They definitely made mistakes. Seven penalties for 63 yards, mainly. That's that's kind of what sticks out to me. Getting in that 10-0 hole at the very beginning in the first quarter, that was, I think, ultimately what kind of hurt them. We know their running game has been solid all year. They can control the clock when they want to, and that's very much what they did here. I believe they had it for 38 minutes compared to like 20 by uh, ECU. They just didn't have that explosion of points that we sometimes see from them when they get in these kind of games. But that's just not kind of how it went down this time. Like we talked about, that's kind of the mark of a good team. If you can hold the ball for so long that you just don't really give the other team the opportunity, then that's almost as good, right? I believe they held the – yeah, ECU was three of nine on third down. This was really just more about – late in the game anyway – their defense just making sure that they were able to do what they're supposed to do. And then Tulane's offense just kind of maintaining the status quo, which again, something that not every team can do at this uh, late stage in the year. Joe, I just want to add one quick thing onto this and I want to get your thoughts on this. Obviously we won't go too in depth because I I can't talk Texas here, but uh, I I can sneak out a quick line. Um, Texas head coach, Steve Sarkeesian, one of the things he consistently preaches Joe is about his team's versatility, right? He, he likes to talk about the fact that, you know, hey, and as it's, he said it throughout the season, he likes the fact this team is versatile and find, finds ways to win. I think that's something, again, that should be applied to all teams. I know I dismissed it as coach speak when I first heard it, but there's value in it. Where I'm going with that is this. For Tulane, especially, Joe, for these teams, you know, like a group of five team who you think, at least from the outside looking in, people who are not familiar with Tulane football or a lot of the G5s like Liberty and others, they may see, you know, the star quarterback and think like, all right, that's their way to win. Right. But there is value in my mind in versatility and finding multiple ways to win this week. It was Tulane holding ECU, of course, not necessarily a great ECU team, but 10 points. Uh, it's only what the, you know, this is the third time this year they've held a team under uh, two touchdowns. So, that in itself, I do think there is value. I think that is, in my mind, a defining characteristic of a football team when they're not, you know, necessarily a team that's just gung ho by the pass or gung ho by the by the run or gung ho, you know, they're gonna win by defense, right? If they can find ways, different ways to win ball games, I think there's value in that. So hopefully the committee is taking that into account as well, in addition to the fact that you have the survive and advance. It's a great point on your part, Eric. It's making me more and more excited for what I think is the inevitable end result of the regular season here uh, with SMU and Tulane sort of on a collision course for that league title game coming up in about a month here. SMU also at 5-0 and in conference play like the Green Wave, sitting in second there with a 7-2 and overall record. And UTSA nipping at their heels, though. 5-0 and in conference play are the Roadrunners. Uh, just have that one... Uh, extra loss at six and three overall. So something to keep an eye on there. The Mustangs, I think, have a little bit tougher um, end of season schedule here when you compare it to Tulane, 
who uh, they do have FAU and UTSA at the end of the regular season, these last two weeks, but they have that, uh, that game against Tulsa next week, which I, I want to say they can sleepwalk and get through that, but seeing how they played against East Carolina, I'm giving myself pause thinking about it, but should be a very entertaining last three weeks in the American Athletic Conference as we see how those two teams uh, shape up. But, you know, Eric, I think one of the other things we wanted to talk about as far as former New Year's Six contenders, and, you know, who knows, they, they still might figure something out, but Air Force drops out of the top 25 after a 20-point loss to Army in Denver as their home field in Colorado Springs goes uh, through some renovations there. But, Eric, this Air Force team really just did not play that dominant brand of defense that we've come to expect from them. And it allowed Bryson Daly in the offense for army to play better than I think they have in the last month and a half. And it's got to be inspiring for that army team who now kind of controlled their own destiny in terms of winning the commander in chiefs trophy, which is kind of the main thing that you come to army to play for. They just had to beat Navy at the end of the season. Um, and of course, ultimately if they went out, They'll need a waiver, but they could get to bowl eligibility if they get that and win out. So, but for Air Force, you know, you hate to see a shot at a potential New Year's Six for a service academy anyway, um, go down the drain in a way such as this. Joe, I'm glad you mentioned that because that was on my talking points here is that it would have been really, really neat to see a service academy kind of push, you know, make that push an undefeated season and say, hey, why not us in New Year's Six? I think that'd be something, especially given Air Force's unique style of play. But Joe, the thing, and you talked about, you know, being away from their, their normal home field. The thing that was most stomach churning, if you are an Air Force fan, is this. You talked about them being away from their home field and sure, that, you know, minor factor, six, not one, not two, not three, not four, not five, six turnovers, four fumbles lost, two interceptions. I mean, that is an excruciating way to lose a game because you take a look at the numbers elsewhere, Air Force would have had a chance if they could have just protected the football. And I mean, I went back and looked and they hadn't had that many turnovers in, at least by my assessment, six years. Um, yeah. I haven't had a chance to look at the at the game, the game notes to see you know what the official number might might be on that. But I mean that in my mind is just you know it's tough pill to swallow. Because take a look otherwise, an army with eleven penalties for 119 yards. I mean they certainly didn't do themselves any favors as well. And Joe, you talked about it right. I mean for an army team that it, it, it's really an uphill climb to see if they're even gonna you know have have any sort of a 500 type year. They got what? Holy Cross, Coastal, and Navy left. Yeah, so that's going to be an uphill climb. To put themselves in position to play for the Commander-in-Chief trophy is, is, is huge. Because as you said, that's one of the main accomplishments you, you come to a service academy for in terms of playing football. And I don't think any of us had them really in contention for that coming into this week. So, yeah, that's really my assessment. Just those six turnovers, really tough pill to swallow. They only had five turnovers all season coming into that game. Zach Lerier himself had not committed a turnover at all uh, coming into this game, at least on the season. And I believe he had three 
he lost a fumble and threw two interceptions. He like he was personally responsible for three. That's such a huge step down from the level of play that we've seen. And you know, typically with Air Force Two and all the service academies who run you know some variation of that option offense, the thing that they practice more than anything for the offensive skill position players is ball security. So to see them fail so spectacularly at that aspect of the game, that's got to hurt <laughs> just everybody top down. You know, I didn't um, – I, I was only present for post-game media availability for Army, not Air Force, unfortunately. So I, I didn't uh, get to hear any what uh, Troy Calhoun had to say about that aspect of the game, if anything. But I imagine he's not happy. Joe, I hadn't even considered that. Of course, you got to imagine he's not happy. I hadn't even considered the fact that of, of what you mentioned. Ball security is such, if you're going to run that offense, that style of offense, it's so paramount to everything that, that you do, right? Because you know you're going to have limited possessions. You need to make the most of them, and the ball is going to be in your hands. So, yeah, that, that is something I hadn't even considered. But even, even you know, further kind of emphasizing the fact that it's just a tough pill to swallow for Air Force. Very much so. Another tough pill to swallow for a G5 team all season really has been James Madison's ineligibility for the postseason. That being said, they're making one more plea for the NCAA uh, attorney general in Virginia. Sounds like there's going to be a lawsuit there to see what they can do. I, I, if anything, I kind of doubt that aspect of it. Um, but with James Madison, I, I think what we're ultimately going to see with them if they do get into a bowl game, it's going to be because there's not enough six and six teams and their APR is adequate, right? I don't think – if it hasn't been reversed now as far as the NCAA's decision, I don't think it's going to at this point. But it seems like they're making one last plea uh, for the NCAA. And I, I see where they're coming from. I think they are definitely far and away the best G5 team right now um so it's just unfortunate for their players that they're in the situation they're in because you know they didn't have anything to do with a the rules that they have to play under being made and they didn't have anything to do with just the whole of the situation they're in really so it's gonna be interesting to see if this changes anything ultimately what the college football playoff committee on Tuesday night, I had to say about their situation is, listen, the second the NCAA says, yes, this team is postseason eligible, then they'll start being considered for the college football playoff rankings. The, the committee's job really is to not deal in hypotheticals. They've said that many times. And right now, when we talk about JMU playing in the postseason, it's still a hypothetical unless the NCAA says otherwise. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't have much more to add there because I think it's kind of been talked about ad nauseum. Here's the deal. Uh, you know, I'm not here to debate the right and wrong of it. Um, or the rules are the rules. And I'm not necessarily a, a guy who is, you know, the rules are the rules. All I'll say is this. I mean, for anyone really wanting a deeper understanding, I would implore them to kind of just research some of the, the factors regarding James Madison and and you know they're jumping and kind of why you kind of had to um why they kind of had to be in this position with that being said it is the deal you make right and i do think that's something that you know maybe some schools 
as they're making the jump have to be cognizant of. Um, yeah, I don't see anything changing at this point. Listen, they still have a path to bowl eligibility. It's going to require something that we did see last year, which was not all 82 spots being filled. That's how Rice ended up as a 5-17 and 17 in a bowl game via the, um, was it APR, right? APR ranking yep. and Rice, those smart kids down there in Houston, right? So there is still a, a path. And quite frankly, as, you, as you're taking a look at it right now, I don't want to say it's a surefire thing, but there, there's still a lot of teams that, that need to, you know, become bowl eligible, right? Um, so we'll keep an eye on it. But yeah, I, I think right now it just kind of is what it is. Yeah, I think my thing is what the NCAA ultimately must be cognizant of is that if they ultimately, you know, bend and say, you know what, fine, you are in because of the arguments made in this letter that um, the school and the administrators and Virginia politicians and whatever wrote to the NCAA, we should be in because we're good, basically, is the argument. If they open that door, then they're going to have to deal with, you know, teams like Jacksonville State making the same argument. And then that's going to create a whole cascade of, of stuff that I don't personally think they are ready to deal with. So I think that's the main reason why they're not going to budge on this now. Completely agree. I, I completely agree with you, Joe. And then I, the last thing regarding cultural playoff rankings this week, uh, committee has talked about Liberty. They're not ranked, but I think ultimately the big argument is something that we've talked about with Liberty before is just strength of schedule. Um, Liberty hasn't played a ton of great teams this year, um, unfortunately for them. So I think if they do end up in that top 25, I don't think they're going to get higher than like 24. And ultimately it's going to at least get them take, it's going to at least take them getting to 10 and 0 at the very, very least. Um, And then probably winning the conference championship uh, undefeated as well. And then, I mean, it, that, I mean that, that's pretty much it because the bowl wins don't count uh, towards the CFP rankings. They don't, they don't do that. They just make the rankings up until the uh, semifinals and whatnot. So th- that's kind of Liberty's situation right now. They're playing good. They're a good team. No one's arguing that. Ultimately, I think their strength of schedule is what kind of hurt them and has, has them in a position where they're not in that 25-24 spot now. Yeah, yeah, Joe. And I mean, and and – you know, their strength of schedule, again, it kind of is what it is. And we talked about this last yeah. week as far as Conference USA. Um, you know, that's that's a situation where that league was reshuffled. And, you know, uh, they're going through just kind of a period of maybe, quote unquote, not being considered one of the stronger group of five leagues. And then, of course, Army for many years have played an independent schedule. So, you know, they had some teams there as far as a non-conference. Uh, you know, all things being considered, if they kind of – if there was a way you could kind of prep or plan for this, right, then maybe, you know, Liberty might have taken their chance of scheduling um, maybe a couple power fives. But, yeah, it's a situation, again, where looking at them, it's very easy to see why, in terms of the strength of schedule argument, why they're not being considered. Eric, before we move on, are you prepared mentally for the idea of Liberty and New Mexico State playing each other in the conference championship game? Because that's a very real scenario going into week 11 of the season here with two brand new CUSA teams facing each other in the league title game. Whew, that is, that is an interesting one, Joe, especially having covered conference USA for, you know, amount of time that I did, I was maybe higher in my mind, or at least from what I saw on social media, 
on Liberty than I think even some folks were. I think even the folks in Lynchburg, you know, we had my old high school classmate, Emily Austin on, and, you know, she kind of talked about the feeling there. From what I saw on social media, I think some of the people in Lynchburg are a little bit trepidatious in terms of, hey, you know, we're, we're going through a quarterback, uh, you know, a coaching change and, and you know, kind of seeing where Caden Salter is going to come in as far as the offense and all of these things um, that I think, I think there was a little bit of trepidation in terms of Liberty. But, Joe, you look at the rest of Conference USA and arguably the biggest disappointment, Western Kentucky, the the Hilltoppers. And, and, and I, I want to tread lightly when I say disappointment because I've been very high on Tyson Helton's ability to just roll with the punches. Listen, for listeners who may not have heard Joe and I in our previous incarnation, Tyson Helton's philosophy when it comes to the transfer portal has always been, hey, I embrace it. He said that. He kind of embraces the NFL style of revamping and reshaping your roster every year, as opposed to you've had some coaches and I don't want to, you know, call them out by name, but Joe and I've had some coaches on the podcast who've been, listen, I hate the portal. You know, it frustrates me. It is what it is. I, I understand the frustration of losing your players at the same point in time that that bag's already been opened. There's no on, you know, you can't cork that thing, right? You got it in my mind, really embrace the challenge of revamping your roster. And Tyson Helton has done that. He's done a hell of a job doing it over the past few years. So I want to say all that and saying that my disappointment is relative in the fact that they, they've they been hit by the portal. And maybe this is that kind of that year where it comes home to roost in terms of, yeah, they, they got like Austin Reed and, you know, they got a couple studs, right? But that depth just seemingly isn't there. So I think that's the biggest disappointment. So it kind of, Prepping myself for a Liberty New Mexico State CUSA title game is super, super interesting. I mean, shout out to Jerry Kill. Joe, we might have to revisit this because if you want to look it up uh, on the fly, I want to say New Mexico State is, what, 10 wins, I believe? Since they lost last year, FIU went to New Mexico State, and that was the week after FIU lost 73-0 73-0 to Western Kentucky. So FIU, I want to say, was something like a 24, 27, something crazy, point underdog. And I, it was, uh, looking it up right here, I don't have the exact date, but they, they um, oh gosh, of course, my my uh, schedule is all out of whack. But anyhow, it was week three or week four of last year, they went to New Mexico State and, and, and beat them as a right. heavy underdog. And since then, Joe, that program has just been world beaters. I mean, again, you may have the record, you may have the, the win-loss record offhand, but it, that game really has been kind of the defining factor in Jerry Kill really getting that thing turned around. So, yeah, I, I mean, for New Mexico State to come in year one and compete for a conference title, just kudos to them. Was that 2022 or 2021 that – 2022 was the Mike McCarthy's first year was week four, I believe, of last year. Yeah. So since that loss to FIU on October 1st, 2022, they, their losses have been at Missouri and then in, which was in 2022. And then in 2023, well, I'll tell you this. They have not lost at home since then, and they have only lost four times since then. So I believe that's one, two, three, four, five, 
six, seven. Yeah, I believe they're like 13 and four. There we go. There we go. Yep. Since then, which is, to your point, huge turnaround for them. So Western Kentucky, not out of it yet. Definitely want to specify that. But, you know, I agree they've been a disappointment this year. I don't think it's a matter of coaching. I think it's just a matter of execution in games against good teams against Liberty and Jacksonville state. I mean, those are the only games in my opinion that they lost where they probably should have, if not, if not one executed significantly better, but I digress. It was something that I was uh, hesitant to bring up with the uh, good people of Bowling Green, Kentucky, when I was there uh, with my wife for just, just a little bit of time uh, over the, uh, over the weekend and uh, just checking in on some old friends while, uh, while we were in town. Uh, nothing, nothing crazy. Had a couple of drinks at uh, good old Hilligan's, uh, one of the uh, best college bars in the nation, I think, in my opinion. Uh, Six dollars shock top pictures. Can't really beat that, Eric. Six dollars shock top pictures, and of course, uh, as you mentioned, you know, uh, your lovely wife. Who shout out to her? I mean, I look on Instagram and I see she's got a great picture of Joe just looking with his hair. And again, anyone who's heard our podcast in the past knows how jealous I am of Joe's hair. It's a phenomenal head of hair. I mean, just. That is what uh, a great wife does. Shout out her man on Instagram and $6 pictures of beer. <laughs> a, yes, very, very grateful to uh, my wife for framing me in a way where I look okay. <laughs> and look, man, if I got the hair thing on you, I think you've got me beat pretty much everywhere else. <laughs> so I'll take what I can get. Most definitely, Joe. <laughs> uh, good times. Good times in Bowling Green, Kentucky. Eric, coming up in week 11, we've got some interesting games on the slate. You know, for me, one that I'm particularly paying attention to, we were just talking about Tulane. Obviously, I'm curious to see what they do this week against Tulsa, um, just because they just came off of a, a close win against a bad team at ECU. And they do have the benefit of playing at home this week um, against a, a Tulsa team that uh, just lost to another bad team in Charlotte. They're three and six on the year, one and four in the American. You can catch that one at noon Eastern on ESPN two. You know, I, I think it's just going to be a, a chance for Tulane to kind of respond and be like, "Hey, we're not that team that barely beat East Carolina. We're still Tulane that got to the New Year Six last year and beat USC in the Cotton Bowl." Yeah, I mean, not much more I can add there because that's my expectation as well. You know that they're going to come out looking to, to to make a statement, and 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 especially you know coming off what you know two point win over Rice, three point win over ECU, and even you know North Texas kind of showing a little bit seven point win there. So I'm sure they'll be looking to come out um, and really kind of assert themselves this week. Friday night lights in Las Vegas. Eric, UNLV hosting Wyoming, another one that I'm looking forward to. It's uh, it's a late one, 10.45 p.m. Eastern kickoff on FS1. We've talked so much about the growth of this UNLV program this year alone under Barry Odom. Jaden Maeva playing so well in his freshman season there. Uh, Wyoming, they've hit some speed bumps, but they're bowl eligible again under Craig Bowl. Still a very good team. Uh, East Gibbs in particular, man, he's looked every bit as uh, as good as we expected him to be when he was preseason defensive player of the year the last couple of weeks. So I'm curious to see what he does and what he gets the rest of that defense uh, to do against this UNLV offense that plays very quickly and has executed at a really high level this year. 
the UNLV offense, you talked about it, hometown kid at quarterback, Jaden Maivia, engineering that offense, a rushing offense that's been really, really good this year and have a standout receiver as well. Uh, yeah, like you talked about, Joe. I mean, Wyoming kind of fell off a little bit, but still a very dangerous team. Easton Gibbs had a chance to see him when Wyoming came to Austin to take on Texas. I believe he had 11 tackles that night, so certainly more than capable player at linebacker. But, yeah, I think this is another game for UNLV to assert themselves and say, hey, we're, we're past the point of was this the right move going with Barry Odom, but really make a push and say, you know, this is for yep. real. This is not a, a fluke. It's not a one-year thing. Best UNLV team since 1984 when they had Randall Cunningham and Icky Woods. Man, it's funny. I was in a sports bar in the Cincinnati area the other day, and they had, like, young Icky Woods poster. Like, you know, it was like an old, old-timey old dive bar. I always forget Jerry Curl's a thing, and every time I see it, like, on a poster – or something like an old advertisement, it's I'm still just like, was this a good idea? <laughs> like, I can't tell. Some some dudes wore it well, others it's it seems like a bad Chappelle show skit. <laughs> and maybe that's why the Chappelle show whoa, Chappelle <laughs> no skit for the listeners at home. I say that slowly. <laughs> yeah. Um maybe that's why it was so accurate because uh, maybe so the Jerry Curl did look as bad as it did on some people's background. <laughs> uh Eric, the other Mountain West game that I think is going to be critical to the title race this weekend, uh 10:30 p.m. on Saturday night, CBS Sports Network, San Jose State hosting Fresno State. Fresno only favored by one right now. Uh still early in the week. That line could move, but Two really talented offenses. Uh, we, we've seen a little bit of a – I think it's been a mildly disappointing year for San Jose State. They've, they've looked really good in spots. Of course, have Javon Cordero, who's a preseason offensive player of the year. Hasn't quite – I will say the guys around him haven't necessarily executed to the level I was hoping for. Uh, but they can certainly make something happen on Saturday and play spoiler to uh, Fresno State's hopes. Um who, you know, Fresno State very much, very much alive in the uh, Mountain West title race at 8-1, and 4-1 uh, and in league play. Just got to lock up that spot right behind Air Force, who's still 8-1 and one and, and undefeated in league play. Yeah, Joe, talking about San Jose and Fresno, I mean, definitely an interesting game. I, I caught you there talking about the line being a little bit surprising. Definitely is, I mean, considering how potent of an offense Fresno State has been. But San Jose State, you know, it hasn't been um, – in terms of, you know, really kind of putting up a front here this year, I I, I expect that one maybe not to be as close as the line, but I don't think we're looking at a blowout by any stretch. It'd definitely be interesting to see what Mikey Keene and company can do. Jeff Tedford in his second run there at Fresno. But, yeah, uh, it's one that I'm expecting the Bulldogs to win, but definitely going to keep interesting, um, you know, hey, an interesting eye on it because in, as an old sports writer once told me, they didn't build all those buildings, big buildings in Vegas, off being wrong. So I have to keep an eye on that one and see how, how that goes. Last one for me in terms of what I'm paying attention to. Let's go with Liberty and Old Dominion. Old Dominion has just been one of these teams that just plays to the level of whoever is on the other side of the field, if that makes sense. They've played some of their best games against really high competition. I think they've played some of their worst games against really bad competition. If I would if I'm going to bet on how Ricky Ronnie's squad handles this, I feel like they'll play one of their better games against a good Liberty team. That being said though, I am not saying I'm, I'm expecting an old dominion win. I'm just saying, I think old dominion 
based on what they've shown me this year, I think they can give Liberty a run for their money. I'll say they will cover the two touchdown spread. I believe it's, yeah, Liberty minus 13 and a half. I think Old Dominion covers. If I'm wrong, I'm wrong. But I think that's uh, that's my educated guess right now on Tuesday. Well, Joe, just look, I mean, they've played James Madison tough. They played Coastal tough. Uh, And of course, I mean, you know, Coastal and I having a typical Coastal Carolina type year, but still a very, very good football team. Yeah, I don't see any reason why. I mean, they played, you know, FBS opponent Wake Forest tough. Um, Excuse me, Power 5 opponent Wake Forest tough. Yeah, I don't see any reason. And to be honest, I'm a little bit surprised at that line. I get it. You're heading to uh, Lynchburg, Williams Stadium. Tough place to play. But no, man, I'm I'm with you. I I do think Liberty wins. But listen, there's one thing about Ricky Ronnie's club that I've kind of figured over the past few years is don't count them out. You know, I mean, while this hasn't been their best year, I mean, a a 10-9 win over – Texas A&M Commerce isn't doing things. Southern Miss is struggling. They got a four-point win over them. But still, yeah, no, I expect them to to definitely definitely cover that spread. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm just I'm just kind of racking my brain here as to any other reason why I I think maybe Joe, you know, before we close up, do you find that G5 games the spreads are a little bit they leave a little bit to be desired? Because that's just where my mind goes on that one. A little bit. I'm not altogether surprised by that, just because. I mean, it kind of starts at the uh, the very top and then trickles down, right? Obviously, the odds makers probably watch, you know, the the top dogs, for lack of a better term, the SEC, the Big Ten teams more than anybody. And then once you start getting into those G5 teams, I think they would <laughs> probably be pretty honest with you and say they've watched the least amount of tape of them on anybody, and which is why we get to the FCS games. And most of the time, they don't even set spreads for those. Like you can't really bet on FCS football at the majority of sports books, unless you get to like the really, you know, where the real gamblers go. But, but yeah, I mean, I'm not altogether surprised, but yeah, I agree. I think when you look at usually G5 on G5 uh, spreads, they're usually, it's usually not made by somebody who's watched as much G5 football as people like you and me. Sure, no, no doubt about it. And you are right, Joe. If, if you want to bet on, you know, FCS football, you are finding uh, a gentleman probably in, a, in, a, in an alley or behind a stadium somewhere, uh, you know, slightly <laughs> unscrupulous. So, yes, I, I, I would agree there. You're going to a website whose uh, main servers are in, like, the Cayman Islands to bet <laughs> on, like, South Dakota State football, for sure. Correct. <laughs> All right. That's going to do it for us this week. We'll be back uh, next week. And uh, probably later this week, if we can get uh, another episode recorded, uh, we did a little interview uh, this past weekend with some Mac experts, Kyle Rowland of the Toledo Blade and uh, Jack Schmetzinger from uh, the Miami Student to talk about the front runners in the Mac title race. Go back and check that out. Thank you again to Mr. Eric Henry for coming on today. If you want to follow him on social media, it's at Eric C. Henry underscore Go check out his stuff covering the Texas Longhorns uh, for Horns247. If you want to follow me, I'm at J-O-E-H-I-O underscore. And then uh, just Google G5 Football Daily. If you haven't checked out the actual site yet, if you're just the podcast person, if if you're that guy or girl, happy to have you either way. Happy football watching, everybody. We will talk to you next week. Stay safe.